Welcome, everybody, to Radiant Others, a Klezmer Music Podcast. My name is Dan Blacksburg, and I'm back here again for another conversation with this time three of my favorite musicians, Cookie Siegelstein, Josh Horowitz, and Stu Brotman. Together, they're the band Varetsky Pass. Josh, Cookie, and Stu are really just some of my favorite musicians anywhere in any genre of music. Behind me, you're listening to their Klezmer Schul project, which they put out a couple years ago. It is a pretty wild album. Especially for a band like Varetsky Pass that is really at the forefront of traditional Klezmer. Each of these musicians has an incredible pedigree. Cookie has worked with everyone and was a member of the uh, New Haven Symphony for a long time. And Josh was a founder of the band Budowitz, which is a really important band in Europe. And Stu has played with everybody, most notably being the bass player and other instruments in Brave Old World. These really are just three of my favorite musicians, like I said. And... I got to talk to the three of them back at Klez Canada. We got to talk about how they formed as a band, what it's like to play together, what it's like to be a band after sort of having really established yourselves and your own musical voices, but then the way that being in Varetsky Pass has sort of opened up new pathways for them, and how they all got into Klezmer in the first place. It's really a great conversation, and I learned a lot about each of these three musicians that I didn't know and also got to hear them tell some of my favorite stories about themselves. Before we get into the conversation, I have a couple of items I got to tell you about. The main one is that Thursday, November 9th, which is next Thursday, if you're listening to this right when this podcast comes out, I'll be performing the music from my new CD, Radiant Others, at Jalopy as part of the New York Klezmer series that happens in Brooklyn. That's in Red Hook. Jalopy and Red Hook, and there's going to be a jam, there's going to be a class earlier in the day. It's going to be awesome. So if you're in or around the New York area, come on through. And you can find out about that on Facebook, or you can find that by searching New York Klezmer Series. And you can still go to Bandcamp and pick up a copy of Radiant Others, the album. I also want to let you know that registration is open for this year's Yiddish New York, which is happening, I think, from December 23rd through the 28th in New York, and it's going to be in Manhattan, and you should definitely come if you're in the area. You can, I'll be teaching there, and a lot of really great people, including Varetsky Pass, will be teaching there this year, so you should definitely come. Sign up. If you can come for a day, day passes are available, or you can come for the whole week. There's going to be a lot of music, there's going to be a lot of concerts, there's going to be a lot of jamming, and I think it's going to be really exciting. And it's a great way to uh, celebrate Christmas if you're Jewish, or if you're not Jewish. Anyway, I hope that you'll come to that. So basically, that's all I got for now. I'll have some more stuff to say at the end, I think. But let's hear from Varetsky Pass. One thing that occurred to me earlier today was that when I met all of you guys, the different projects that you were sort of known for or doing mostly in klezmer music were really all spread out, right? All your bands 
you didn't live in, none of you lived in the same city as all your bands. And now, and for the last bunch of years, you finally are actually in a band where you all live close to each other. So what's that been like? It's been better than when we uh, lived uh, different places, but we made it together a fair amount of time. Uh, when Cookie was uh, last living in uh, Connecticut, uh, Josh went to live there for a while, and I came for uh, rehearsals for projects. So we spent a lot of time together. In some ways, um, we had to be more creative with time there because when, for instance, when we were doing the Klezmer Schull project and Stu came out, we would start rehearsal at 11 and we would rehearse till about 3, have dinner, and then we'd start again about maybe, we'd have an early dinner, start again about 5.30 and go till about 11. So we were really rehearsing long, hard hours. And now what we do is um, we've kind of decided we should start to really try to do regular rehearsals, but we'll get together before something and if we're working on a new project. Um, and instead of one long time, we might do two hours one day and then a couple of hours another day, and then maybe we'll all go to a movie or something like that. So um, let our dogs play together. So it's become more uh, mixed with social stuff together than just the work. We, we were, um, in, when we were in Connecticut, we recorded a lot of our rehearsals just because that was, seemed to be the efficient thing to do since we wouldn't be together all the time. And we wanted to do our, one of the projects after Klezmer Schul with all the cutting room floor fragments that we had because we had like hundreds of things where we would just try out wow. stuff and just play them. And we thought, gee, we should go back to those ideas and take things that we thought weren't good but we like now. But where we never the, did that. Where are those? I don't know. Do you I have too, them, Stu? Do you have yeah. them? Stu yeah. has them. Stu has them. It's great. It was a great idea. Uh, yeah. You know. So you guys are a band. You know, this is another thing about Klezmer that's kind of unusual these days. These days, I mean, I think many. You know, the Klezmatics are a band. There were many bands, but you're one of the newer groups of people of your generation to be like a real band and actually stick it out and keep doing new projects. Right? It's like a different thing. Well, you know, um, it started when um, a guy named Stu Lipkowitz. Hi, Stu Lipkowitz. Mm -hmm. Hi, Danny. Um, if they're listening, we'll if, get them. To we'll listen. get those. Exactly. Anyway, um, so he brought Josh and I together to teach at the Albuquerque Academy in 2002, and we were supposed to do a concert together. And we were driving around Albuquerque, shopping, some other things, and then we decided after a couple of days, boy, we really should rehearse because we're having a concert in two days. And so we threw this, con a duo concert, we threw this concert together and we were both kind of excited and petrified because we knew, we didn't really know each other and it was so much fun and we took so many risks and um, then we knew we were going to be on a project with Adrian Greenbaum together and then Josh said, you should make a solo album and I said, I don't like solo albums, I want to do something together with you know, a collaborative thing. He said, well, you should meet Stu. So I came out to Berkeley, uh, let's see, we met in July of 2002. I came out to Berkeley in October, met Stu. We hung out, we played a little music together, and then the next few months, I put together some repertoire and sent it to them by snail mail. And, um, and then I made a cassette recording and sent them the cassette recording. I'm saying that slowly so people who don't know what it is can look it up on Google. They can Google it, the new verb. Anyway, so 
Um, and then Stu was saying, there's this really interesting ornament you're making, and I, I want to know how you do it. And it was my bird who used to sit on my shoulder when I played, and he was squeaking. Squeak! <laughs> but then, so we kind of... Did you of, figure it out, Stu? Can you play that now? Yeah, yeah. Oh, of course. Oh, good. Yeah. He's mastered it. <laughs> then we, uh, I came out in May. We rehearsed for four days, and we went into the studio, and we changed everything in those four days. It was like a quilting session. So we cut this, we pasted that, we turned this one upside down, we changed the meter on this one, we did all kinds of crazy things. And we rehearsed at Josh's house for about eight or nine hours a day. Then we went into the studio for three days and we made the first record. That's, That's how it was. so worked. great. It's an incredible record and it just really feels like you guys are a band. It actually feels like you've been doing it a lot longer than that. I was really interested to hear about some of the, like, the idea of taking risks and like what, what were some of the risks, that, how did, like what were you doing and why did they feel like such big risks musically speaking, I guess? We don't make arrangements for performance and we just go, let's play this. And um, these guys, first of all, I feel so lucky to play with these guys. I really, I had listened to them on other projects before and I, kind of, well, I was, you know, raising my kids and doing side gigs, but never real full, never really felt like I was part of a band. I was in an orchestra, a chamber orchestra, but um, never had anybody that I really felt like I could spend my life playing with these guys till I, till we made that first record. Um, but the risks were to, un to feel that we musically trust each other so much that that feeling of let's let each other go at our fullest speed without inhibiting each other when we're rehearsing. You know, someone will say, well, let's try it this way. And our rule is we try everything anybody asks. There's nobody that says, I don't even want to try that. And we're just not allowed to do that. Our, our kind of general rule is trust each other and let's see what we come up with. We might guide each other, but... The trust thing is about uh, not correcting the kid. The child who makes a mistake doesn't get glared at. Uh, it just gets, oh, that's nice. So when we play stuff and we play unexpected stuff, sometimes it's, it's, uh, it's coming from our own minds and we think that might be a good idea, or sometimes it's just a happy accident and the other ones don't flinch and they encourage it and it gets incorporated. So th that's, that, that's one of the risk um, uh, ways we work, just uh, surprising each other. Yeah, I think the, the psychological space that you need to be in, and you know this as an improviser, Danny, is um, to have humor about yourself a little bit on the stage. So, because if you're gonna take chances, you're gonna have to fail sometimes quite often, yeah. because that's the risk. The risk is that they're not all experiments and in success, but, um, and so if you're gonna take a risk, there's gonna be failure, and if there's failure, you have to be able to move on and accept the failure, and I found the easiest way to accept failure is to um, be, uh, have a sense of humor about it. Mm -hmm. So if somebody really screws up, I mean, I, I don't know who screws up the most in this thing. I always think it's me, but um, I don't know. <laughs> and, that, and you know, you have to kind of laugh. And, and, sometimes, and, and if you hear somebody else doing something funky, it's funny. I mean, it's, it's kind of like, um, you know. 
gas. Yeah, there's like yeah, right, you know yeah. what I mean. Yeah, yeah, just let it out. <laughs> yeah, just, I mean, it's always funny though. Yeah, I mean, exactly. gas is always funny. <laughs> you know, there's just a, so much to unpack there, um, especially about improvising and what it means to just let things go. But I actually would want to ask, especially you guys who were in or maybe in all three of you, but certainly uh, interesting in Budowitz and Brave Old World, which has had very, very sort of specific and understandable identities as groups, especially Budowitz, um, how different was this from that? I mean, I know that you guys released a, an album when Cookie joined Budowitz that was, to me, really different than the albums you had released before and much more in the vein in the method that you're talking about now, but especially the first two albums, like how much was this like a change for you in the way that you were approaching Jewish music? Budovitz? No, uh, like uh, moving from Budovitz to like Vreski Pass, Pass or something like that. Um, that's a good question. I mean, th that Budovitz record, that you're, the Budovitz live record was mm -hmm. the one that Cookie was on, and sure. she had a great influence on that record. Like you can tell. Yeah, and it right. Yeah, so blew my she, mind when it came yeah, out. Yeah, it was great arranging in there. I mean, and we do arrange stuff, like we, we put things in of order. Course. And a lot of times we break them up, but but um, that's about the limit of the arranging that we do. The 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 breaks that happen in the music kind of happen on their own, and sometimes we keep them, and sometimes we don't. But is that and, like pretty different than how you had been doing things earlier in the work that you were doing? I didn't. We didn't construct things in Budovitz either. I mean, we put suites together. Yeah, but, but you still do that in as, Yeah, but as far as breaks go and stuff like that, there was a lot of freedom. The, and the, the same um, uh, level of freedom that exists here was in Budovitz. It's just there were more people, and everybody knew their function. I mean, it's about musicians kind of knowing what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Like if you have a, a, a brach player, you know, a viola player, he knows exactly what to do. There's, there doesn't need to be any correction there. A, a, the cello player knows how to play his lines, you know, and, and when to, you know, and, and it's great when he doesn't, and when he makes a choice. Like Stu's amazing with coming in and out of the melody, doing, he's on his own. I mean, he's like, you know, his own world. <laughs> yeah. But with Cookie, yeah, with, with Vetsky Pass, um, I think that we're, we're closer personally. You know, we live closer now and we um, are, are more together. So there's a real natural flow that happens in the ensemble um, just because we know each other so well. I mean, and yet we still always manage to surprise each other. Mm. I don't know if I answered That's on that a macro me. level and a micro level. Uh, we often uh, kind of think that it's Fiddler's Choice instead of making up a set list, and uh, we'll just let Cookie start a tune. Uh, but that's not just the tune. It could be parts of the tune. It could be different sections that have been swapped out from somewhere else or something she's making up on the spot or taking in a different key or putting in a different articulation, too. It's, it's interesting, um, when I, you know, sideman out or, and someone says, play a fiddle solo, I have to think, oh gosh, I, I won't be able to change my mind on stage, and I actually mm -hmm. have to stick to what I'm thinking. Um, you know, when we play, you know, I'll make a set list, um, mostly for, you know, just to give myself uh, well, he wants me to make a set list. So. No, actually, no. Wait a minute. Wait. Let me no. finish. Let me finish. Then you can. Then you can Depends argue the with game. me. But I don't ever keep to the set list. Oh, good. Because as I'm playing, I I think, ooh, you know, I'd really rather go from this tune to a different tune, and uh, I feel like I know and trust these guys that no matter what I play, as long as it's you know not. Um, 
the, a Mozart string quartet for solo violin and accordion and bass, they're gonna, they're gonna just be there. I wanna qualify that, because it's true. Uh, like, w when we have a new repertoire, like when we were beginning Poland, Poland um, it was unfamiliar stuff, so we couldn't remember, like, the tunes, like, some of them sound the same to us, and, and it's like, you know what I mean? Like, you're going, you go, I'll just play along. I don't know what, what's happening here. <laughs> so then if we had to play like a posh gig, like on a concert hall kind of thing, then I would want a set list because I'm completely lost when I don't know the tune well enough. Mm. That's when I want a set list. But when we know the tunes, I'd rather not have them. I, we love, Stu and I love the Fiddler's Choice thing. It's like when we're relaxed, if you just said, hey, pick up your instruments and play, you know, we hand it over to Cookie, and she's just, she's, and she always is, I don't, you don't have many brain farts. I mean, she just, it pretty much flows. She can go from what, she's so used to playing for dancing that she just has a really solid stream of consciousness. It's very easy to follow. She also gives really good cues. Chamber music, huh? Mm -hmm. You know, I was thinking about that, you know. And the, dance playing, though. And dance playing, yeah. And, yeah. I want to think about a little bit like when you were all learning to play klezmer and what kinds of things it opened up for you personally as musicians and you know you've come to this place now where you're talking about basically being free as musicians and just playing whatever you want to and that's you know the goal and I think it really comes across in your music but when you were when you were starting to play this music you all took it in a different direction or were looking for something maybe a little bit different than what you saw. Or, or, or maybe I'll put that in a more question way. Like, what did you see? What did you want to see? And then how did you go after that? And what did you find? Shall I start? Sure. Uh, well, I, I grew up with two survivors from one from Nizhny Veretsky and one from Munkach. And so I was expected to play for my family and I was expected to play for their friends. But it wasn't, I, I didn't associate it with klezmer music. It was, it was, you know, sometimes Yiddish music, they called it, or sometimes music from home, my father would say, or, you know, but, and, it, and I think it was mostly little melodies um, that, he would sing to me and I would play and then he would correct me many times and, you know, no, not like that, you know, or whatever. And they were probably, um, he would say, here's a little Kolomeki or here's a little Kozatsky or here's a little, you know, a little, the Rebbe's melody he would sing. Um, and I didn't, I didn't put any krechs in. I didn't put any trills in. I played the songs he told me to play. And then the uh, the Grine, or the refugees, the survivors, would cry, and I, that would suck, and I would go out and play baseball and think, ugh, I hated it. It was a burden. And so um, I didn't, the idea that if you would have told me when I was 10 years old that I would actually, on purpose, play Jewish music, I would have probably kicked you in the shins, because that was like my nightmare. And so when I, um, I decided I wanted to be a veterinarian. And so for me, Jewish music growing up was something that brought out the pain in very difficult people. Let me just put it that way. And um, well said. then I, I decided I was playing in orchestras always through high school and I switched to viola and, in uh, high school and 
played it by ear because I couldn't read the clef. I was totally an ear player. And then even faking my way through everything, the youth symphony, just learning it by ear, moving my bow, going home and listening, going to the downtown library in Kansas City, listening to the symphonies and just kind of listening to my stand partner. And then I went to the conservatory and my teacher said, you're, you're fake, you're not playing what's on this page. It was some stupid Stamets concerto or something. And I said, oh yes I am, I'm playing this concerto. He said, no, you're playing the version that's in the listening library downstairs. So he, be, he spent a few years making me a sight read, teaching me how to read, really a sight reader, which I wasn't before. So I still was never, ever, ever interested in going back to Jewish music. I always played international folk dance music. I played in a band that played Serbian, played Romanian dance tunes. Uh, there was a big Serbian community in Kansas City. Then I had children. When I had children, I was pregnant with my first kid around a little later than the Klezma revival, maybe a few years later. And I started playing some bar mitzvahs with our friend Adrienne Greenbaum. She said, I heard you play this music. And I said, well, yeah, okay, whatever. And then um, I took a couple of lessons from Hankus at when he was getting his PhD. And he said, you need to find someone from, I don't know, Transcarpathian area you know, around Austria-Hungarian. I said, oh, you mean like my parents? And he said, what? And then I played a Manigan that my father had taught me. He said, what, where, what? What do you, you, you had this all along? You better go and talk to your father. You better go interview him. So I started coming back to playing this music on purpose, but I still didn't associate Klezmer with what I played at home. So I went to Klez camp, I learned Klaxes and trills and all this kind of stuff. And I came to Kansas City to visit my folks and I played um, one of the tunes uh, that my father, I, that I had played for him. And he went, Oi vey, what's that noise? He didn't like all the ornaments. He said I was killing the melody. Mm. So for him, all of the things we were relearning as the Jewish style, well, now of course, you know, for him, what went on in Veretsky of the town of 17 people, or I mean, you know, more than that, was Jewish. So I started to understand the difficulty of categorizing Jewish music, and this fascinated me. And this is when I started to really want to look into the regional music around there and different types of Eastern European fiddling and kind of between what I had at home. And then I met these guys and I was, I met you know, Jimmy Gutman, and I started playing with Ken Maltz and Pete Sokolow, and it started to gel for me to develop my own style, but fed by what I got at home, what I applied later, and also my, my classical training. Awesome. The end. No.
So what were you looking for when you got into this stuff, Josh? And how'd you get into all this European stuff? <laughs> well, I was living in Europe at the time. That so helps. I moved to Austria in 1984 and lived there for 17 years. And uh, in the 80s, I got into Klezmer in the eight, late 80s when the Waldheim thing happened. I don't know if people here remember that Kurt Waldheim, um, that was when he was um, from the World Jewish Congress. The, the word came out that he had, was active. He was general secretary of the UN and also president of Austria at the time, and I was living there. So a lot of, during that Waldheim era, a lot of anti-Semitism broke out in Austria, and a lot of good things came out of it because um, historically the, the textbooks that w would not include the war period um, in schools, now we're starting to do that. So there was a movement against Nazi, you know, the new neo-Nazis and the whole thing, as well as anti-Semitism that broke out. And it was during that time that I realized there's no Jewish music here. There's very little Jewish music in, in Austria. And so I kind of saw it as a mission to go and find it and, and play it and perform it. So there was definitely like a, a, an ideology behind it at the beginning, this, this sort of, and so I did, you know, I started going to Eastern Europe, you know, to, started going to Budapest and Romania and Poland and, and trying to find people, you know, collect the music. So you didn't, I didn't really find very much then. I did find some stuff, you know, and tape gypsies and stuff. And um, a friend of mine had given me a tape of Yankovitz playing, you know, like early, night from 1913, some accordion music. And I thought, oh my gosh, that sounds amazing. But to be able to play, the modern accordions don't sound like that. I'm going to have to get me a, an old accordion. <laughs> <laughs> so I was playing music at this, this Jewish music festival in southern Austria. And I heard this, this um, group playing. This guy had this old accordion. And, I, and it sounded like Yangovitz. So I went up to him and I said, you know, where'd you get that? And eventually, you know, I, I found one eventually and bought it and started working on it. And I was listening to the old recordings and I had a real need to sound exactly like the old recordings. I was obsessed with that and I thought that was like, you have to do that. It was like, you know, because I'd come out of the jazz world where if you want to play jazz, you got to learn bebop. You got to learn the complex, you know, complex jazz to be able to play. That's what people were kind of, people mostly start is like, let's learn bebop. Um, and, and once you can, if you can play that, you can go into other areas. And I felt it was kind of the same thing. If I can play, if I can sound exactly like those old, and the violinists, it wasn't just the accordionists, they weren't good enough, but um, the violinists and the, and the clarinet players to get those inflections. So I was obsessed with doing that. And yeah, and so, so I went ultra traditional at the beginning and it was really, you know, obnoxious. Because <laughs> were you walking around Kles Camp being like? I no, I wasn't at Kles Camp yet. This is the okay. eight, late '80s. I didn't. I didn't even know about Kles Camp. I was in Europe, and I was gathering some. I had a trio in Vienna with a violinist, who Polish Russian violinist, who wasn't as obsessed as I was with getting all the nuances. So it was like, come on, <laughs> come on, let's get you know. So anyway, it started with that ideology, you know, of like needing needing to be traditional, um, and replenish, you know, the European world with with this stuff, this mm. old stuff, because it, it had an emotional content that was so great. I mean, I had just come out of school as a um, composition. I got a master's in music composition and theory. So I was immersed at the same time in an avant-garde music group. We co-founded an avant-garde uh, composition group where we were, you know, people would scream and burn instruments and God, one guy st 
stood above the, I don't even want to talk about what he did anyway. <laughs> they weren't respectful to the audience all the time. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it was that. I mean, people would like take photo paper and bury it in a mountain and, 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 and take it out after three months and whatever notes look like notes on a page, they'd put that in front of the musicians and you'd play that. That was that kind of stuff I was into. Oh, sure. But at the same time, I was into like getting the cracks of, you know, classical music. So anyway, it, it devolved into um, you know Budovitz at, at at some point. Well, I worked with Joel Rubin, yep. and 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 after a while, I think when you talk about what did you look for, that's what I look for. What did you find? Um, you know, the old recordings, obviously, and then some old people sometimes. Um, but what happened after that was, it took a long time for me to feel confident enough to start doing something with it in a modern way. I came out of the the composition world where to do that, just to try to modernize something, is a cliché. That's, it's a, the aesthetic world of, of modern composition is hard, as hard-assed as you can get. It means like, you mean you think you're doing something new by taking klezmer music and adding, you know, a salsa beat to it or, or, or adding it with um, you know, uh, atonal, making it atonal. That was done in, in 1898, you know, when Slimlinski did that. I mean, you know, this was done, you know, Bartok was, you know, way beyond what you're doing. You know, so like, to do this was like, that was child's play to, to go in that direction. And that's why I never touched it. I thought, I can't do anything new with Klezmer. Um, it, you know, it's, and, and every attempt that I had seen, this is an honest thing, I just thought it just doesn't, it doesn't compare to what people were already doing in the 1920s. So, so that's why I stayed away from it. I, I can't, there's nothing I can say. But it eventually, you know, came into something like, you know, doing the Klezmer Schultz project where I realized, okay, it's not important to do something new that is new in the world. It's enough to do something that's our own in this world. Kind of, you know what I mean? And, and that works better for me. So what we're doing is not, there's nothing groundbreaking about it in, in, for the world, but it's, it's, it's our own for the klezmer scene, let's say. Yeah, I think it makes a big it's difference. It's atomized. I don't know. But that's okay. I don't know how to explain it better than that. Well said. I started playing uh, Jewish um, cantorial music um, by having to uh, play bass with my father when he was accompanying my uh, mother's uh, father who was a cantor in Atlantic City. And um, he would practice at home and I would, I would hear it. It wasn't an annoyance to me like it was to everybody else in the house. And uh, I, so that was when we still lived in the East and I wasn't a musician yet. But by the time uh, we moved um, to LA and I started studying music, uh, I, I had that in my head, so when, uh, when Zeta came out um, to uh, sing at my bar mitzvah and blow the local rabbi and cantor out of the water, um, because he sounded like a real European and they sounded like they had learned this erzatz accent in Israel. So uh, my father and, uh, and, and my uh, grandfather would, would try to play, try to work together. My father didn't have a clue, but he just kind of strummed rubato chords, trying to just follow the, uh, the emotional shape, I guess, of uh, what my grandfather was doing. And I was doing the same thing on bass. I was just trying to drone along and, and sound like it went with what was happening. 
And uh, I already knew that I liked going with what was happening. I was much more interested in um, being able to hear something and, uh, and follow it, um, find my place in it, than uh, learning a system of why, why does a, a 6 5 nine chord go with a, a, an 11th uh, with, a, with a hangnail. And um, I'm, I'm not theoretically excited about uh, the, uh, the structure of music, but I like having um, a, a good enough ear to hear what's going on. And um, I, was, uh, I was lucky to be at UCLA at a time when they, they were starting the uh, Ethnomusicology uh, Institute. Uh, I took as many study uh, groups with that uh, in, in the institute. They, weren't, they didn't give credit yet for the first couple of years. They were just, you, you just signed up and if you were good enough, they let you in. Uh, so I got to uh, do a, a variety of ethnic music. And the, uh, the most important was um, the Bulgarian class, the Bal Balkan, uh, Greek and Balkan music that uh, Sam Janis, who's a, a noted cymbal player, um, taught. Um, they had a gudulka, and um, gudulka is, is a fiddle that's played this way, and that felt like playing bass. And it, or, it made music that I already had somewhat in my ear from being a, an avid record collector, kind of taken off from my father from the pattern of uh, Josh White and uh, Harry Belafonte and the Weavers records and, and finding some, oh, that's really foreign stuff in the bins and uh, getting interested in um, world music, essentially, which didn't have a name yet. So when I, when I got attached to uh, Bulgarian and Greek music in that class, it stood me in good stead. I, I fell in with the, um, the folk dance community which operated at a high level in LA, um, notably in a group called West Wind, um, which became Amon when West Wind got, got nervy and split off and, and came up north. Um, so we still had uh, uh, Amon and, um, and then oh, some other splinter groups doing Balkan stuff. And some of them were uh, very high-level um, choreographers and uh, well-trained dancers and uh, costumers and people that collected uh, good, you know, important costumes from old communities in uh, Yugoslavia and Bulgaria. And I got to play that stuff and some of it on stage, which felt uh, like a very happy accident. Uh, Michael Alpert was also part of that community. He wasn't uh, in, the, in the folk dance um, core of musicians, but he sang the Yugoslav uh, songs, and uh, the, the parties were almost as good as the real Yugo parties in Cleveland, where people drink all night and sing the songs they know. Um, it's just that they're, they're foreign songs, and I, uh, I like that. So I learned a, a greater variety of instruments in that uh, context, too. I, um, I, I played some guitar and, and mandolin, so I also played the, um, the uh, tamborita uh, groups, um, playing um, Serbian and Croatian music. And I'm, I'm running out. <laughs> so when, uh, when did you first think man, this Jewish thing is really going to be a big part of my life, this Jewish music. I mean, as a career, or, or how about when you started actually being 
when it started actually being a career for you, what was that like? It, uh, it didn't start looking like a career, uh, but it, it felt like um, the same thing as being in the Balkan music crowd, being a specialist, being, being versed in something that other people weren't doing, and, uh, and be, being able to, uh, to, to shine at, at parties uh, by being in an obscure market. Um, Michael Alpert and I, um, and um, his roommate at the time, Mark Simos, started playing um, Yiddish tunes from 78s that Mark brought back from an East Coast visit to his grandmother. And um, that, that turned the tide. Uh, that, that was the same period that, uh, that Lev uh, Lieberman in, in uh, Berkeley and uh, Henry Sapoznik in New York started sharing their collections of uh, old 78s from the, uh, the, the teens and the 20s of authoritative, um, so-called authoritative uh, Yiddish bands and soloists. And all of a sudden, it, it wasn't just something familiar that I could kind of go along with. It was the same thing of needing to do it exactly right and, and sneering at the kids who didn't get that melody or, or didn't get that ornament. Um, but uh, being a, a closed community of people that played you know, Brandwine's version of that particular tune from that particular year and busting everybody who, didn't, who hadn't done enough listening to really know how to do it. thinking about this podcast and doing it is that when I was coming up in the scene, like when I first went to Klez Camp in 2002, and I remember in 2003 staying up really late around a bunch of people like Mark Rubin and Frank London and a lot of people and maybe some of you guys, and there was talking. People were just talking about stuff. And it was just so exciting. And it was, some of it was crazy stories of concerts. There was a lot of talking about how messed up people got and how they all survived, which I'm happy for. And <laughs> it just made me want to do all this music. And I remember, Josh, I feel like we've talked about before, about staying up all night at Klez Camp playing and arguing about things. And I wonder whether that's, I think that's starting to happen at places like this, Klez Canada again, you know? But for a, long, for a little while, I was a little worried that it wasn't happening as much. But maybe just like think about what was it like when you started, when you had realized there was a big group of people, like maybe going to Klez Camp or something like that. You had a big group of people where you could just nerd out about all this stuff as much, as deeply and as much as you wanted. And like what any anecdotes or, you know, just what the feelings were. Well, uh, 
The first time I went to Clez Camp was 1993, and I had at that time a five-year-old and a two-year-old. And I was leading a klezmer band in a synagogue in Chester, Connecticut, Beth Shalom in Chester, Connecticut, with Rabbi Doug and uh, Doug Sagel, actually, Peter Sagel's brother from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And they um, paid for me to go to Klaz Camp because I'd heard about it and um, to bring tunes back and to bring some repertoire. And so I went and the idea that, first of all, because I grew up in the Midwest, I grew up in Kansas City, one of two Jews in my elementary school, well, three counting my sister, and um, the Christmas pageants or the Christmas uh, concerts, well, let's have the little Jewish children come up and tell, them how, tell us how, we, so how they celebrate Christmas. Well, we don't really celebrate Christmas because we don't believe in Christ. I'm covering my head so no one throws anything at me. But so the idea of really being in a place where most of the people there were either Jewish or interested in Jewish culture or it was overwhelming for me. I was in tears because I drove through Connecticut through all the beautiful Christmas lights and I drove through Middletown and up through Massachusetts and into uh, New York and um, then I come to a place where there's Yiddish, which I grew up hearing, there's Hungarian, there's Polish, there's, there's of course, English. And I felt like, oh my God, this is, my whole family is here. And it was just so overwhelming. And then not only that, but to be able to um, sit down and jam with uh, Ken Maltz and um, Jimmy Gutman and you know Henry and all the people that were there it was, I, I, I felt like I had been, uh, finally found my home base. I mean, it was really overwhelming for me. And coming back to Connecticut, rural Connecticut, felt, okay, my, my defenses are up again, you know. And it, it was, a, I mean, this is not the musical experience, this is the Jewish experience that I had. The musical experience, staying up, I, I don't think I slept. For the, for the first five or six years I went to Klez Camp, I didn't sleep the whole week because I was so hungry for everything. And then Mark Rubin came and, and we, you know, whoever was sitting in the, in the wherever, we just were playing tunes all the time. And um, that was just, I, could, I, had a, I had a culture I could play by ear again, which is what I grew up doing. It was overwhelming for me. It was just so moving. Um, and then to see this young generation, which was like you and Michael Winograd and, you know, Alex Kontorovich and all these folks that were coming up through, um, you know, in the generation, maybe two generations, I don't know how much younger, how much older I am than you, but uh, maybe a generation and a half, the interested in this music was so, I'm telling you, I was just like, I could I was in tears all the time. You know, even when you guys were running around, you must have been like 15 or 16. I didn't show up. You were, it was Michael no. and... And Jake. And Jake, and, oh, yeah. And there were these kids playing Freilichs and Bulgars. I was like, what the heck? This is amazing. And Sarah, and all of these kids that were growing up in this culture. I felt like, well, why didn't I get to grow up in New York? Why did I have, you know, 
I mean, I like Kansas City and everything, and I know where to eat when you go there, but still, <laughs> it was just spiritually so comforting to me. I, I mean, when you're talking about uh, the, the uh, discussion starting again, it just reminded me that um, the world is, is so different now than when we and you, I mean, each of us um, are kind of, I mean, you're a little, we're actually a different generation, mm -hmm. but, um, but the pre-internet age where we were cutting our teeth on this stuff, we didn't have, like, I, I remember um, the first time I met Marty Schwartz. He's the collector in, in Berkeley who um, generated a lot of the material that the West Coast people used, 78 records. And I remember the first time I went to his house and he, and he gave me a cassette of, of recordings. Now, at that time, all that there was was the complete klezmer and Marty's own reissue. And the Baragovsky came actually later. Um, so there, was, there wasn't stuff out there. The Klezmorium had made a record, Capellia had made, you know, there was just, and um, there was very little material. And so we got the cassette, and it's like, oh my God, there's 12 tunes on this. I went and I wrote them down and I learned them, you know, and every bit of music was a treasure, like you wouldn't believe. I had notebooks at home eventually, you know, you know hundreds of tunes. Just every, we just ate up every morsel. It, because it was not easy to get this music. It just wasn't like now. Like, and, and to learn it, you had to learn it from that crappy little cassette, you know? You press, press forward and you, you know, press play, you press rewind, play, rewind, play, rewind, you know, and then you get it. And um, that whole, but not only that process, but the going out to people and learning from them directly, trying to find old people to tell stories. I was obsessed with trying to learn um, the wedding sequence. Everybody talked about it being wedding music. Nobody knew what actually happened at a Jewish wedding in 1890. I mean, it just wasn't material that was out there. And like, what was the barjonas? What did the, what did the barjon do? What did the, they say? So, you know, collecting these recordings that you could find or sources from archives. And I was obsessed, so I'd go all over to, these to people and say, what happened at the wedding? What did the barjon do? And nobody knew. I mean, it was like, so it was such a, the point is it was such a struggle to get every little tidbit of information. And now, this is what, um, so you guys are different. I mean, you, you really, you worked on this stuff, but there's so many pockets of students and people learning this music that, that don't know this struggle. They, um, because you can get it on the internet, you can get it here, you can, um, it's, it's everywhere. I mean, there, there are tons of records, the, the repertoire is out there, it just, it, it blossomed. We had a repertoire, when I was, you know, in the 80s, there was a repertoire of 40 tunes. Yeah. And we're talking, now we're in the thousands. I mean, and, and the difference between that. So, so when people write me, like now, um, I'll get these, we were just talking about this the other day, we'll get these emails from, uh, you know, Bristol, England, or, you know, Japan, or whatever, and they start out like this, hello, comma, new line. Um, I'm a student at so-and-so university getting my PhD in klezmer music. Please send me any information that you have. I have questions, or um, answer these questions. And you get this questionnaire and I'm going, oh my god, are you kidding? Hello, comma? <laughs> like, but I don't have a name? <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, I would try to go to Romania 
when I first went to Itzik Schwartz, who was, you know, in the director of the music theater there with Celine Schwartz, we were trying to find people in different parts of Romania that knew Jewish music. And I was doing this from Austria. You'd get this telephone number, you know, and you try to call there. You couldn't get through, you know. So you'd find out. You go. You go to the. You take your car. You know, I drove a car. Drove to the to the market to the farmers market there and asked the yogurt ladies. You know, where does this person live? That's how you got around. It was like you couldn't write to it's like like hello comma. You know, what was it like the Yiddish theater in nineteen sixty-three? You know, what was your repertoire? I just you know what I mean? You had to go there and you bought you brought you know, you had with you camel cigarettes, you had tea, they don't drink coffee, and biscuits. You know, and, and like everybody smoked, loved the camel cigarettes because if you've ever smoked a Carpati cigarette, um, you will you'll, might be sick for a week, you know, with the, with the Romanian cigarettes or whatever. I mean, this is, you would bring your gifts and, and it was tea, cognac, and, um, and, and biscuits and cigarettes. You know, and that's how you would get around. That's what you would, you would bring as gifts. And you would sit with people and you'd try to get the information from them. And it would take hours and days and you'd sit there and you'd ask them questions and they'd want to tell you about their kids, you know, and what their kids are doing. And you'd go, but what about that song? And they'd go, I don't remember. And you, you know what I mean? So it's like how much time it took. And it's nothing like that anymore. And you kind of, I'm jealous because the material that we, we you know, fought for it is so easy to come by now and I, I feel like there was some I mean I wish it had been easier but those so the discussions that we're having I'm, I'm glad if they if they come back but there, and there are kids that are going to Europe and learning and, and going to people and learning from them like Jake Right, yeah, and, and, yeah. you know, there's and the ghost note people ghost and note, around, people, yeah. we have this ensemble near us. These you know scruffy kids oh, cool. who are who are yeah, going no, totally. out there and spending time and living out there and doing that stuff that that we did, but um, yeah, and and so there it, it does still happen, um, and and maybe there isn't anything lost there, but but it was um, yeah, I, I mean it's so quick now, and 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 what's happened is the the medium of being able to get all of this music so quickly has actually changed the repertoire. It's actually changed the DNA of the music. I think so. I think yeah. it's, I think that the two things that it strike me about that is one, in my own life, I think I was scared to be that hungry for something. Yeah. And I actually wonder how much the availability of this stuff affected that like maybe there's like well it's all here you don't have to don't go very far you don't have yeah. to go very far you shouldn't go very far why would you be you know just right. take what's available to you and like use that and right. I, I think that there's I mean I, one thing I hear over and over again is that level of hunger and, and just trying to make something happen and and then the kind of time that you were able to put I think this is the other side for young people it's actually very hard to put that much time into something where you can just go away, drive your car somewhere for a yeah. week. You know, no one has that kind of money. Right. But it didn't take. Oh, we didn't it have didn't the money take either. that. Yeah, but it didn't take some amount of money. Then it was like, well, it, it just. But it, I don't know. Maybe and maybe these folks who are a little more comfortable with that lifestyle, yeah. you know, are able to do it still. I know I'm. I haven't been. You know, I'm this not is. Anymore. You're not anymore. <laughs> no, yeah. no. But it's 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 a different world now. On the other hand, maybe it really shouldn't have ever been so hard. You know, like it should be much easier to play music like this. On the other hand, klezmer never was a folk music particularly. It was always this professional kind of music, and that kind of like 
has made it an interesting entryway into this world music, folk music world. And it's, I think maybe is part of why there's not, never been so many people who sort of played it at the level that maybe we would get real excited about. Yeah. I think the, what you said earlier, the availability, we don't know if it was, if you were in the 80s. I feel that you would have done exactly what Josh did because it wasn't available. And I think, and Stu did too, the availability is there. And so, you know, we think, well, we can't really go to Romania because we don't have the money. And, you know, at that time, the need for gathering was more important than, because there's no other way to do it. It's like if, if um, we wanted to um, hear something, you'd have to get on a bus and you'd have to go down to the music library downtown in the library where they had certain recordings. It's just the way it was. You know, if you wanted to, you know, in the 1800s, if you wanted to go to the bathroom, you had to go outside in the snow. You know, so I, I'm positive that had you been interested in this music, if you'd been born and interested in this music at the same age, in the 80s, you would have done exactly the same thing. It wouldn't have been a question of time or money. But we don't have to now, because we have YouTube. So now, we have YouTube and we have recordings and, um, you know, we're, we're trying to, as a matter of fact, uh, do a project on some Czech and music from the Czech lands, and really to get some of the melodies one of us or all of us have to go to Brno to the Janáček Conservatory and try to go through the archives of uh, Janáček's uh, collections, uh, František Bartosz collections. That's a trip. That's as far. It's but it's not going to sit with the musicians that you know played the melodies from the 1800s because everything's so urban and, and. But I, you would have done the same thing. You would have been in the same well, car. You did. You, you right. hung out with the old guys. I mean, you guys did. You you played with Pete. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I've been knew. lucky to be able to do that no, with people so, like Pete and Elaine Hoffman Watts, and, right? And yeah. stuff. But also, what's so interesting is someone. I think of my generation, and I'll probably say this a million times on this podcast. But we're sort of the first group of people to grow up to be able to, to be able to grow up playing this music. Right. You know, Michael Winograd and Jake Schulman meant get to start when they're kids. Yeah. Right. I started when I was like eighteen. First went to class camp when I was 19, and and immediately started playing with people, and then professionally within a couple of years. And so, in a lot of ways, we did progress through this music a lot faster, yeah. and became more mature, like knew how to play it a lot faster because of the availability in that. And I and, hope that that's what that. And would 18 provide. is still a kid, by the way. Oh, I started in the third, my 30s. Mm -hmm. You started yeah. in your 30s, right?
I'm really interested now in what was new in like the 70s, 80s, and 90s. What was, what did you, did you notice or did you feel like you were creating something new or did you really feel like you were just recreating something that had already happened and then my perspective on it is more like it's something new? I, I was more interested in doing the old stuff exactly for much too long. Although I had been in a rock and roll band that uh, did uh, electric adaptations of um, Turkish and Greek music in uh, the, the late 60s, uh, I, I didn't make that connection to, uh, to think of like electrifying uh, Yiddish music. I would love to hear that. You, I would love to be in a klezmer rock band with you, too. <laughs> right. It would be awesome. We tried it several times. Uh, Jeff, um, when, when Jeff Warshower uh, visited L.A., um, a couple times, um, I, I got together a guitar amp and um, my uh, my bass and my bass amp, and got borrowed an electric guitar for him, and we tried to jam. Uh huh. And a concept never gelled. Oh, I see. Yeah. Well, maybe it's time to try again. We'll have to see. I don't know if trombone's the right move on its own, but we'll, but you know, these are the music's got to keep moving. But so even in for me, even just listening to you guys, but Brave Old World never felt like something where you were just recreating things as they used to be. No, but it, uh, we, we all knew, because actually we were all a, a core of, uh, of players and teachers ed educated through Klez Camp, and by that time teaching at Klez Camp, that we could trust each other to know everything that um, we might throw at each other, that if somebody wanted to play tune X, everybody else only, already knew how it went, even if we started processing it and changing it and arranging it and making, uh, making a different stru structure and uh, combining it with other things. We had, we had that concept already, but it was still made a whole cloth out of the authentic material. So I think this is like a great way to, because we actually are going to run out of time soon, but just to talk about the band as it is now, you guys have gone through uh, how many records? Four records? Four, I think, yeah. And four. then and Lilith, we never and then Lilith which is the fifth project. So, And you're very much like a project band or like a, 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 you know, it's like almost like a comedian with the act. You know, you guys have your act, which is great. That's a great way to do it. Now it seems like everything's available for you guys. And you, you talked about how you work through. And Josh, you said you let your, you just went for what you wanted to do and let all these compositional ideas come. And even if it wasn't the most groundbreaking, you know, new thing. And I know Cookie, we've talked a lot about how you uh, transform and recom recompose lots of traditional tunes, which is something that's really inspiring. And so I was just thinking about what, what kind of compositional ideas or techniques are kind of floating your boat or you're just interested in now, whether it's specifically for this, pro for this band or just in general, like what's exciting, what's exciting right now in music for you all? I'm happy to just accompany whatever happens. <laughs> when, I, when I really did uh, interview my father, and this will be really short, I won't make it really long, about uh, the fiddler in Veretsky, whose name was Mendel Haskels, and he said uh, that he was all mixed up all the time. He played, started one thing, and then something else happened, and then he, he, he thought he forgot the, the tunes, but really what he was doing, and maybe he did, um, the idea of recombining things and um, feels like a traditional behavior. You take a melody and you go, 
I think it was in two, or was it in three? I'm gonna play it in three. Uh, may, no, maybe I'll play it in two. I'm gonna, I don't like this as a downbeat, I'm gonna make it an upbeat. So we do a lot of stuff like that. That is so fun for me. Um, when we did the Polish project, we used some material from Oskar Kohlberg, who was a monk that collected a lot of uh, melodies from the Polish lands. And um, I would take a, a quote from him, and I would take the first six notes and write a whole doina out of that, or an improvisation. We would switch, we like to switch around. If we don't like a section and something, we'll write a section or we'll make something up. That's really fun for me. It's like taking, it's like a growbot, you know, you put it in water and it gets like <laughs> 10 <laughs> yeah, times the size. Of course. And um, a big thing that I really, would I, which I try to give to the students when I teach in a place like this, and even my students at home, is the idea of learning the traditional forms, learning, you know, writing down, transcribing things from recordings that you really like, and then finding pieces of that that you want to then take into your own repertoire and twist and turn, but something that feels good under your fingers on your instrument or something that kind of makes your ears stick up. It's, you know, something that viscerally affects you. Because when we work on a project, when I'm in a satisfying, when things are satisfying in the arrangement, it's a very visceral feeling. And so that's what excites me about a new project. It's kind of like, oh, I get to cop another buzz. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's really that way. And, but coming from a really straight classical background and having a career in orchestras and stuff, was this something you always did? Or when did you start really feeling like you could go and compose a bunch of stuff? Well, when I was little, like I said, I had to play. I, I, I started as an ear player, totally, sure. not a reader. And I started playing very small melodies. Um, I think that the compositional stuff started really when I got in this group because I felt the freedom and um, the, the first rehearsals that we had where we really started to cut and paste things, that kind of released my Pandora's box in that way. That's great. I love the, I love just, it's really important to remember that we don't stop developing when we're young and we just, you know, you keep finding new things to oh, do. Oh, yeah. I feel like it's just getting started. Yeah? <laughs> yeah, in a what's, lot of ways. What's happening now, then? Well, no, I mean, I don't think we'll ever stop loving traditional stuff and dealing with it, because there's, there's always a, um, thank you, there's always a um, kind of an inner pressure to do new things with what you have. And so even if you don't break the style, I mean, there, there's a tremendous amount of power in, in working within Restrictions. I mean, you know, Stravinsky said that, you know, more restrictions you put on yourself, the freer you are. The, 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 the explosion of ideas that you're inundated with when you start a project is, is daunting and, and, and imprisoning because you can't make the decision. And so, so working within a stylistic limitation is really um, fun and, and freeing in some ways. So when Cookie talks about cutting and pasting, in a way, you know, that's how, um, not with the paper maybe and computer or whatever, but, uh, or recordings, but, but that's how doinas have been traditionally created, is by um, a, a song is a template and you improvise using that template of that song to make an improvisation. And so if she takes that from four or five different songs and does it, it's still part of that traditional process. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, and so, so in a way, that's ultra-traditional to do that, the process itself. Maybe the result is not so... Uh, that's okay. It can be new. But 
new was what we're what we're considering as old was new at the time. So I mean, you know, there is that perspective that there's we we think of traditional music as being um, something that has existed has always existed somehow, and or that it 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 um, you know has a, a, an enormously long background, and that's not always true. Um, I mean, our our ideas of tradition. Uh, the idea that you need to replenish tradition is itself very traditional. And, and I mean, it sounds like a cliche, but it, it really is true. I mean, we're, the, the style that we're talking about is a fixation between maybe the 1880s and 1930. You know, if you really want to get to it, what happens before that, we just don't know. But, um, but uh, we have documents that, that show, I mean, style just it does change. And so we see, I mean, I think we, we are evolving as a band always also in that way. And sometimes, you know, frustrating. I mean, like, I think the Lilith Project was difficult for all of us. And I think the Shul Project was, well, Klezmer Shul Project was too, because we were unfamiliar with that as a band, doing, doing more modern experimental stuff as a band. And so it put some strain on us creatively, just, you know, you know, like, and we just like got it out there, but this cookies process of of you know of cutting and pasting. I mean, we all do that. Is um, also related to how Stravinsky composed. He once said that he he would write his ideas out and throw them into a shoebox and shake the shoebox and open the lid and pick <laughs> out the ideas and string them together. And sometimes his music really sounds like that. Yeah. But it's a that's a process. I mean, every process is different. But anyway. I think it's really important what you said about, and something that I love about klezmer music and, and I love about my ability to play this stuff is being able to improvise within a really rigid amount of restrictions. I mean, there's yeah. klezmer music I think of as being like very delicate music, actually. It's super yeah. easy to upset, especially if you're talking about music. Let's say klezmer music is instrumental music that you can dance to, that you can do these specific dances to, yeah. right? In order to keep it like that, it it's not very flexible. It's actually quite easy to break. Right. And people have broken it in all sorts of interesting ways. And I know personally I'm actually coming around to a lot of that stuff a lot more than I used to be. Yeah. But it's just such a joy to be able to improvise in such a, in such a tiny context. Because, you know, as they say, there's an infinity between uh, zero and one, one right? right. <laughs> you know, so it's a little bit like exploring something like that. And that's yeah. cool. Yeah. You know. Yeah. <laughs> well said. Yeah. All right. So that's that's uh, probably a good place to wrap up for the moment. And let, but we all have a lot more to say to each other. And certainly, I know you guys have a lot more stories that I think we could tell. Or we'll tell them again. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, all right. Let's thank Varetsky Pass so much. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> All right, wow. That is Josh Horowitz, Cookie Siegelstein, and Stu Brotman, Varetsky Pass. Like I said, they're really my favorite klezmer band out there working today. I just love the music each of them make individually and then collectively. It's just incredible what they come up with. And the way that they take the sounds that we love in this klezmer music and just make it their own, it just makes me really happy and I'm also really happy to be able to call each of them my friend and colleague and to be able to talk to them in this context and share it with all of you 
It's a real treat for me. So that's it for today's episode, and that actually may be it for our second little mini-season. I have to do some searching to see if the audio came out from the final interview I did at Clez Canada, but it's possible that that will not be salvageable. And in that case, this will be it. But who knows, there might be another one coming. And if not, there'll be more episodes coming soon, either at the end of this year or very, very soon at the beginning of 2018. So again, November 9th, Thursday, November 9th, I'm playing the New York Klezmer Series in Brooklyn at Jalopy. Check out New York Klezmer Series on the internet to find that out, and sign up for Yiddish New York. You can find them either on Facebook or by typing that into Google. Great. So I hope you're all doing well. That's enough from me for now. Be well, and good Shabbos. It's like harmony, you know? Yes. It's like that part in Amadeus when he's talking about... Uh, yeah, all right. And make me do it. All right, great. This is part of our collaborative project, Sound Check. Thanks, Okay, Noah. thank you. Thank you. All right. Okay.